Hi, my name is Danielle and you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this podcast, we discuss subjects that might be creepy to some and sometimes even frightening. Some of our episodes will deal with serious subject matter, while others will be more lighthearted. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover, just an interested party, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone and welcome back. My name is Danielle. I'm Paul-Emile. And you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. This week, we will be discussing the Shafia family murders. The case we're talking about tonight is a pretty heavy one, and there's a lot of information to sort through and discuss. So this episode will be coming out in two parts. It's not something I normally do, but I think if I wanted to give this case the full attention it deserved, it was really the best way to present it. In part one, we'll talk about who the Shafias were, and in part two, we'll discuss the crime and its aftermath. Part two will be released next Sunday. Just as a disclaimer, I did look up how to pronounce the names of the various people that came up in this case. If I'm saying it wrong, I apologize. I am going to be doing my best. On June 30th, 2009, a grisly discovery was made in the Kingston Mills locks. A car was found submerged in the locks, and it contained the bodies of three young girls and an older woman. So locks are like a body of water. Basically, they're used to bring boats up, if I understand correctly. Right. It's uh, to bring boats up a river that otherwise wouldn't be able to. So it's like two dams. They, they, they close one end and fill it up with water, and then the, the boat moves up to the next one. And then, right. yeah, it's like steps. Stairs for boats, essentially. Stairs, yes. So in Ontario, with the Rideau Canal, there's like a series of locks to bring the boats up. So this is where a car was found. The water is obviously not super deep there. Shortly after the grisly discovery, three people showed up at the Kingston police station to file a missing person report, according to a 2016 McLean's article by Michael Friscolanti. The individuals that showed up to the police station were Mohammed and Tuba Shafia and their son Ahmed. They reported that their three daughters and an aunt that they had been traveling with had gone missing. It didn't take long for the police to put two and two together and realize that the bodies that they found in the car were the missing Shafia family members. So this is the missing person's report is filed after the bodies are found. So the bodies are discovered in the morning in the locks, and then a family shows up to say, we have family members that are missing. Okay. Okay, so the parents and the brother, the rest of the family is wiped out. The three sisters and the aunt are, are have passed away. Right. The girls were Zainab, age 19, Sahar, age 17, Giri, age 13, and Rona, who is 52. I'm curious to know if they were aware that the bodies had been discovered prior to showing up to report them missing. So we're going to get into a bit of the history of the family and we're going to follow the story as it unfolds from here. The Shafia family, according to a Fifth Estate episode from 2012, they were originally from Afghanistan but had been living in Dubai for a little over a decade 
Muhammad had made a fortune in the import-export business while living there. After being there for over 10 years, the family decided they were going to relocate. They were looking for a place to move to, and basically they were looking for a place where they could get citizenship, not just permanent residency. New Zealand and Australia were both on their radar, but they finally settled on Canada. They specifically chose Montreal because Quebec had a program that if you invested in the province, it kind of fast-tracked your ability to become a resident or to become a permanent resident and a citizen. Yeah, we have the same thing or had the same thing in New Brunswick. I think several different provinces uh, now have that. I'm not sure if it was there since 2009, but um, just to encourage people to, to move there. A few months after Mohammed, Tuba, and their seven children arrived, so that's the Shafia family that originally comes to Montreal, the parents and seven kids, they sponsor Rona to come over. The immigration lawyer that helped them was told by Muhammad that Rona was his cousin and would be working as the family's nanny and housekeeper. So if you remember in the beginning of the episode, Rona was said to be their aunt. But now That's right. So she's a cousin. One of the as one of the parents siblings at the beginning of the story. Well right. In the beginning of the story that's that's what they're saying. Yes. The lawyer who helped the family with the paperwork to get Rona to, to sponsor Rona to come over to Canada did state that she remembered an odd moment when they were asking Rona about her, basically her relationship status. And she started to answer and Muhammad cut her off saying, it's not important, we don't need to discuss this. Now the reason he did this, the reason why there's confusion as to her relationship with uh, the Shafia family, is that she's actually Muhammad's first wife. So in Canada, she wouldn't have been eligible for this. We don't... Polygamy isn't something that's supported, so you wouldn't be able to bring over two wives. Rona and Muhammad were married in 1979. After they were married, Rona found out that she couldn't have children. And according to her journals that were found after, after the accident... Muhammad then proceeded to make life difficult for her. He would berate and insult her. It became too much for her to bear, so she told him to go ahead and take another wife. At that point, Muhammad married Tuba, who was 17 years old at the time and would have been about half his age. She went on to have child after child with him. And it was almost as if every child she had was another mark against Rona. The relationship between Tuba, Muhammad, and Rona became very abusive. So both Tuba and Muhammad were abusive towards Rona. As the family grew larger, it got worse. And basically just because she could not bear children and was no longer serving a purpose. Right. Um, at that point, Muhammad also started being physically violent and was beating her. So Rona does get sponsored over to Montreal. And myself, I was thinking a little bit like, why did you go? Why did you not? Like you had this occasion to not follow them and not be with them. But she'd been with those seven children her whole life. And in one article I was reading, it's even said that Tuba gave her one of the children and said, this is your child to bring up. So she more than likely felt like a mother to those children. And it would have been a really lonely life. She would have, I'm sure she would have missed them very much. It would have been difficult to separate from them. Yeah, and then 
her eyes, she was stepmother. Mm-hmm. But the other side of this is maybe um, she felt unsafe remaining in her country if she refused to come to Canada. That's also a possibility. So the Shafias settled in Montreal. They were getting a new house built. As they were waiting for that house, they all lived together in a four-bedroom apartment. We've got three adults and seven children in a four-bedroom, which would have been a pretty cramped space. The children started attending school, and life for some of the family members became almost unbearable. It's like they were a house divided. Some of the children were rebelling against the strict family rules, while others were really following them closely, and sometimes they would actually act as spies, so spy on their siblings and report back to their parents whenever there was a transgression of some kind that was done. And I suppose being in a different country would have probably given some of the children uh, a feeling of freedom or the feeling that it was okay to rebel against the family's strict rules, while the others... I mean, every child has a different temperament, so the ones that were a little uh, braver, I guess, would, would have rebelled, and the others just told the line. Exactly. While she was at school, Zainab, who was the eldest, met Amar. Amar, who was interviewed by the Fifth Estate, says that on Valentine's Day, after he first met Zainab, he gave her a card that basically said, if you're interested in being my friend, you should wear a white dress to school tomorrow. She would have been about 17 at this time. So the next day, she showed up wearing a white dress. They began dating in secret. So they would meet at the library, just stealing little moments together here and there when they could. Zainab would tell Amar that if her father found out about them, he would kill her. So Amar, was he also a new Canadian? I didn't write it down where he's from. I believe he was Pakistani, but I'm not sure how long. Yeah, I believe he was from Pakistan, but I don't remember how long he'd been in Canada. Zainab would tell Amar that if her father found out about them, he would kill her. Amar at the time didn't take her seriously, he just thought she meant like he was very strict and she would be in trouble. But Zainab's younger brother Ahmed attended the same school and she said they really needed to be discreet because if he saw anything he would definitely report back to her parents. In the meantime, Sahar, who was a few years younger and attended a different school, was also rebelling against her upbringing. So she'd go to school dressed quite traditionally, but once she got to school, she would change her clothes, remove her veil, and put on makeup. I went to school with people who did that to lesser extremes, actually family members, like they would get to school and change and put makeup on. Yeah, I was going to make the comment that uh, I suspected there was probably close family members that did that. When her parents found out what she was doing, they started really tightening the reins. Tuba began driving Sahar to and from school and would actually pick her up during her lunch break so she wouldn't have any time to to break the rules. So total control on all of her free time. Correct. Things went downhill very fast after Mohammed and Tuba left for Dubai on a business trip. They left their son Ahmed in charge of the household. And he actually caught Zainab sneaking in her boyfriend into the house. After this incident, Zainab was not allowed to return to school, and according to the Fifth Estate, she was mostly confined to her room. So a prisoner in her own home. Correct. 
Amar lost contact with her for a year. During this year, Sahar started reporting to her teachers that she was the victim of abuse at home. Her teachers were growing more and more concerned about her well-being. Uh, at one time, Sahar tried to commit suicide but was discovered. Social services did get involved at one point, but Sahar would have told her story to the teacher, but when social services got there, it was often in front of the parents that they had to tell what was going on, and they would time after time retract their story or change what they had said. I think uh, it puts social workers and teachers in a difficult position because trying to respect the cultural differences in people may have let it go on longer than it should have. And they do bring this up, um, I believe it was in the Fifth Estate episode, where they talk about basically how the social workers were just unprepared to deal with this. They didn't think that this, and we'll get into what this is, but they didn't think that anything would escalate to the point where it did. So I think you're right. I think things weren't taken I'm not going to say, well, yeah, things weren't taken as seriously or action wasn't taken as quickly because they just didn't fully grasp what was happening. And also, there must have been some, I don't want to say pressure, but hesitation maybe on the social workers' part in making sure that they didn't step over the line and disrespect the family because of the the cultural differences and, and wanting to make sure that they felt welcome and accepted right because your parents are allowed to be strict right so it's a parent's choice on how strict or lenient they are they can put down their rules and at one point what does strictness become abuse like she was confined to her room you can get grounded and like have to stay in your room for a week but when it's almost a year you've been taken out of school and all contact has been cut with everyone you know at that point it becomes abuse that is red the red flags are there Right. After almost a year had passed, Zainab was finally able to get in contact with Amar by email. Uh, She did sneak out of the apartment to meet him. So they met at a McDonald's. She told him that basically her house had become unbearable and she had to leave and she would do it with or without his help. She told him she was being mistreated and abused. I'm not sure exactly how old Amar would have been. I think at this point... Zainab was about 18, maybe going on 19, so I'm assuming he'd be close to the same age if they met in school. He didn't have a job, he didn't have an apartment, but he saw how desperate she was, so he agreed to help her. When she left her house with Amar's help, her brother, Ahmed, ended up calling the police to report her missing. The police did quickly track her down because um, they were given Amar's number, and they ended up reporting back to the family that Zainab was safe but she didn't want any contact with them, and the police asked the Shafia family to respect this. The family did not follow this advice, and Tuba got in touch with her daughter and begged her to come home. After much cajoling and promises, Tuba agreed to arrange a marriage between Zainab and Amar as long as her daughter would come home. But it seems like this was mostly a front. The couple did get married, but almost immediately they were divorced. So Amar's family didn't support the marriage. 
he says there was a conversation between Zainab and her parents. So like pretty much the wedding itself ended and she told him she had to go back live with her parents and they were granted a divorce. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. While all this is going on with Zainab, Sahara also started dating someone. And she'd also been caught by her brother. So she was out with her boyfriend one day and I think they were kissing and her brother walked by and saw them. They tried to play it off like he was just a friend, but the family knew that she was rebelling. The teachers at her school were growing increasingly concerned about her. She was cutting classes, she was losing weight. She once fainted at school and ended up being hospitalized and no one went to see her at the hospital. No one from the family went to visit? No one from the family went to visit her. They contacted social services again, but they were told that because she was 17 and a half, there was nothing they could do and they should seek assistance elsewhere. They were basically telling um, the teachers that she should just go to a shelter. I know it's easy to second guess everything that happens, but as the situation is growing and, you know, they're getting concerned, it already feels like not enough was done. Yeah, I mean, we have all the pieces, so our point of view is different than what social services had but they'd been called multiple times and while all this is happening Giri who was just 13 at the time had also started acting out by this time how long have they been in Canada uh, it's going on two years okay Giri was Sahar's most loyal defendant and admired her sister so I think she was kind of mirroring her behavior a little bit she was cutting class as well she got caught shoplifting and she told her teachers that she really wanted to be put into a foster home so she's trying to get out of the, the situation that she's in yeah. at her home there were as i mentioned several occasions where social services got involved but again a lot of the times when um, the social worker would come in the child who had put in the complaint would retract it on a few occasions that happened right in front of the parents, so I can see why they weren't comfortable saying anything. But the other troubling side of this is that you're talking about teachers that are growing concerned. These are, you know, your uh, three women or three young girls. So you've got three different teachers. So the information is not only coming from one source that's worried. It's coming from three different or, or possibly more. I think more. they were all in different schools, though. So I don't know if those calls were all going to the same resources, like going into the same binder so someone could see like, oh, we've had X amount of complaints from the children here. But at that time, everything should have been computerized and true. Some, it should have been picked up somewhere. True. At this point, we haven't really talked about Rona. Rona journaled a lot. So a lot of the information we have about how life was for her comes from her journals. But she was also given a $50 allowance a month and would basically just buy phone cards to call her family overseas. We also have a fair bit of information about what was happening with her. She wanted a divorce. Her life in the household was hell. But she would continuously say that she didn't want to leave the children. Things took a really frightening turn when Rona overheard a conversation between Muhammad and Tuba stating that he was going to kill Zainab and the others, according to the McLean's article. She shared this information with her sister over the phone during multiple calls, but her sister lived overseas and couldn't help. Plus, as she said, 
she kept telling her sister, you know, you're in Canada. This is not going to happen here. You're going to be fine. She also begged a cousin to come meet her at the border and just smuggled her into the U.S. I think there were multiple phone calls where she was obviously in despair. Yeah, she's getting uh, more and more desperate. Yeah. But again, like the family is so far. How you're not there. How can you help? I can see how you keep thinking, I'm just going to be supportive, as supportive as I can, but flying overseas or coming from the from the U.S. to Canada in some situations isn't that simple. And even, uh, even though you're surrounded by people, you're almost like on a raft floating in the ocean because you're in a different country with different laws and you don't have any family or support around. And, and you've really come to a new country, but you're only slowly discovering that there is a different way of life than what you've been used to. Yeah. The other thing is, more than likely, Rona didn't have a huge social circle in Canada. So she probably had no one to turn to, might not have understood the resources that were available to her, or maybe even had kept seeing the social workers coming in, nothing happening, so thought, okay, well, there's nothing I can do. It would come out later that Google searches were beginning to happen on the family's computer at this point. Searches like, can a prisoner control his own real estate? Uh, There was a lot of searches for bodies of water in Quebec and Ontario. And the most chilling of all was, where's a good place to commit a murder? So there's a trail left. Mm -hmm. We're going to be stopping here for tonight. The second part of this episode will be available next week, where we'll discuss how the family's car came to be found in the locks and the aftermath of this terrible discovery. We're going to wind down as usual with our moment of kindness. So would you like to share your moment of kindness? Yes. Where I work, um, it's, I guess you could call it a retail or, yeah, we call it retail. We have many, many vendors there. And last week, we got into a partnership with the Food Depot in the area where we've got a community fridge in the building where at the end of the day, people can put leftover products that they have in this community fridge. And we've also, and customers, and we've also have a box for non-perishable food items. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was quite taken aback by the amount of product that was put in there last week on on the first week. So what we do is at the end of the day on Saturday, people just put what they've got there. It's noted. Uh, we, we keep track of it. And on Mondays, the food bank comes by and picks everything up and is put into food boxes to help the needy people. Yeah. I, I think it's a great partnership and uh, is giving an opportunity for the needy families to access our products that might be out of their reach for financial reasons. Yeah. So that's my moment. So that's all for tonight. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thanks to everyone who's been listening. You can reach us at crimeandmysterycanada at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at crimeandmysterycanada. We also have a Facebook group with the same name. Have a good night and stay safe. Stay safe and be nice to the frontline workers. Good night.